Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show that connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm originally from California, but now I'm living in beautiful Wuhan, China. Today with me is Bebe. Yes. Hi, this is Bebe from Beijing. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. How are you doing, Jason? Doing pretty well. Um, today, I want to talk about universities in uh, the UK, US, and I guess Australia, maybe a little in Canada. Mm. Formerly, and up to 2018-19, the targets for many Chinese international students, would they would go to the prestigious universities in the US, UK, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that may be about to change. Uh, because mm. one factor, and this is from an article on BBC News, so this is from BBC, COVID fears put off Chinese students from UK. Mm. So, you know, essentially here in China, we don't have COVID basically mm. because the government stomps it out whenever it pops up. Right. They, there's an immediate reaction to like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Stomps yeah. They like shut that area down. They'd start testing people and pretty soon it's gone. You know, like in, in, in Shanghai, a few days ago, zero COVID new cases mm-hmm. for several days in a row. Completely right. successful way of making sure that people don't get COVID. So understandably, in a country where you feel completely safe from it, families, according to this article, are reassessing whether they want to send their children to UK, where basically they've just said, we're going to let it go. COVID do whatever it wants to people. Mm-hmm. And families in China are like, I don't know if I want my kid going there. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me, can I ask like how things are going in the States? Like with their parents and brothers? My, one of my brothers did have COVID. So I have three brothers and my mom mm. and one of my brothers and his entire family got COVID. They all have been vaccinated post COVID because they're afraid of additional rounds oh. because the WHO recently came out and said each time you get a new iteration of COVID because you, right. you're not entirely immune, you have a higher chance of getting what they call long COVID. Long COVID. COVID or lung COVID? Long, L-O-N-G, long. Long COVID is when you have permanent- um, Symptoms? Bio, you have permanent symptoms. Not like- yes, see Yes, symptoms. Not the same symptoms from being fully sick, mm-hmm. but parts of you. There are different organ problems, liver issues, kidney problems, okay. other lung problems. These long COVID symptoms are like, oh, okay, now your body has reacted in such a way that it is permanent negative features associated with getting COVID a certain amount of times in certain ways in certain cases. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, as of June 28th, there were 1,041,027 deaths Mm. with 88,910,140 cases. In China, Mm -hmm. there were 5,000 deaths. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about a totally different universe of how COVID is spreading. Mm -hmm. Today's episode shouldn't be about COVID, but it does make people in China, where this is not as much of an issue because it's being handled differently, Mm -hmm. question whether they want to go to the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah. I mean, although it's not about COVID, but let's face it, I think it has influenced just about every Mm -hmm. aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. Like nowadays, Mm -hmm. you can't really talk about changes without mentioning the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go on vacation soon and I'm hoping to go to Senya, by the way. Oh, And um, before we leave, we need to get a test. When we land, we need to get a test. So you're right. Right. Basically, every time you do anything traveling related, you need to be aware of this new situation. Okay. So I thought my understanding is that the new 
rounds, like the Omicron, uh, it's not so hard on the on younger people, mm. right? The symptoms, mm. they're okay, are they? I think, you know, I do have uh, friends whose kids are heading off to universities. I mean, like this September, mm, mm, they've been mm, accepted mm, and all, but they're still debating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they still haven't really made up their minds. Like this one family, their daughter is was accepted into our school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She wanted to go to the UK, but didn't work out. So she's going to the US. Mm. Um, but I think her parents are still feeling just, um, and maybe not just from the COVID, but like just the situation in general. Yeah. You know, yeah. like safety reasons and other things you hear in the news. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. So, mm. yeah. Anti-Asian violence is a very serious in the U.S. Right. right so, now. I mean, like years ago or decades ago, going abroad to study was like a good thing, mm-hmm. right? You don't mm-hmm. really debate about mm-hmm. it. You might worry about tuition, yeah. uh, but otherwise people didn't really think much about mm-hmm. it. And nowadays it's different now. People really have to gather up their courage in a way to make that decision. Mm. So, yeah, it's getting more complicated. More Chinese students are being are, are afraid really, to study abroad. In addition to the fact that COVID is an issue in the U.S., not as familiar with the U.K. other than this article and a few data points I looked up, but in the U.S., you have massive gun violence where people are going into schools and malls and shooting each other at rates that never seen before. Mm. And we have unprecedented anti-Asian specific violence Mm. and racist action. And then on top of that, we have COVID. Mm. So becomes Chinese family might be looking at this situation and think, is it worth it? So then it's like, okay, we're going to pay a ton more, like, Mm. I don't know, a hundred times more to go to this prestigious Mm -hmm. university where my child might be shot or or attacked, attracted with with racism (laughs) or potentially get a, you know, a life-threatening disease. So it's like, uh, Mm. you know, the weight of not going is starting to affect Mm -hmm. people's decision making. Right. Like my feeling is that Chinese people in general are not as great in risk taking people, you know, growing up in Mm, other cultures. mm, mm, Maybe mm. we're just a little bit more fearful when it comes to things like uncertain situations. That's my feel. You know, we're more conservative in this way. We're not as happy Mm. taking a lot of risks, which, you know, some other culture we would consider risk taking a good thing. Actually, young adults, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, Studying mm -hmm, abroad. mm -hmm. Um, It's not so much of a individual decision. Yeah. It has to come as like a family decision. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I guess pretty much the same in the in the U.S., even though you're considered a little bit. an adult when you were 18. I think there's more like uh, people just try, oh, I'm moving away from mom <laughs> in America. Oh, whereas, whereas in China, that's not like part of the decision making process. For some young people, it's like, I need to get out of the same town as my parents for a little while. <laughs> yeah, just to stay sane. The same for the parents. A million, a billion, or maybe a gazillion years ago, a giant split open an egg. Then came the lady giant, who made people, and Mr. Curious, the botanist, Mr. Handyman, the baron on the tree. This is our new season of Chinese Folk Tales, and we will explore the ancient mystical world together. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Some say Chinese is one of the most difficult languages in the world, and learning it is almost impossible. So learning Chinese, the most difficult thing. So I'm sort of tone deaf. I can't really hear them. I think the cultural mindset is the biggest complication for The grammar. It's just complicated. So much. Only because you're not learning it in the right way, 
Why not try Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. You're listening to the bridge. Well, I wanted to mention the monetary issue, not just the cost of going, the cost of for the U.S. and for the U.K. of people not going. So I wanted to throw out some statistics oh, big, about big money. Yeah, exactly. Mm. This is from Cambridge website and it said this is the exact quote. The tuition fee for home fee status students starting their first undergraduate degree in 2022 will be nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds for the year. Then I looked at uh, inter- a separate place. It was really hard for me to find, actually. International tuition hmm. fees for individual courses. So just one course. For if you're an international student, if you want to study like philosophy uh, and art or economics, it's £23,000 per course, not for the year. Wait, per course? Per semester? Per course. That sounds very expensive. £23,000? I, I was starting on the cheap end for international students. No the, way. If you go to medical, it's £60,982. This is for international students. And some of the ch- slightly cheaper ones are architecture, £30,000. Chemical engineering, £35,000. So we're talking about not just three times more. We're talking about maybe as much as six times more for one single course of per that, term. That can't so, be. That, that must be the tuition for the whole semester or whole year. I was wondering if the language, if I just didn't understand the language because I attended a, so let's just imagine we're talking about the just the year, then medical students pay, international medical students pay six times more than their uh, local friends. Mm -hmm. And then if we're looking at it positively, and if you're studying like archaeology or uh, Middle Eastern studies or classics or all these other, it's slightly cheaper, Mm 23,000. It's about only twice and a half as much or so. Mm -hmm. So the students, the international students, which come prize student, uh, you know, universities like Cambridge, or if you're talking about the United States, Harvard or Berkeley or Stanford or whatever, mm-hmm. they're paying two, three, four, five times as much money. So if the international students start coming less, even just like mm-hmm. 10 or 20 or 30% less to the UK and the US, the UK and the US are generating a lot less money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, in an article I found, it's called Fading Beacon. Mm. The U.S. may never again regain its dominance as a destination for international students. And here's why that matters. That's the Mm. name of the article. Mm. It says colleges and universities in the U.S. attract more than one million international students a year. Higher education is one of America's top service exports. Did you know that? I did not. Generating $42 billion in revenue. Wow. But the money, the word is spigot, you know, like the faucet. Yeah. Yeah, it said the money spigot is closing. Mm. The pandemic, visa restrictions, rising tuition, and a perception of poor safety in America have driven new international student enrollment down by a jaw-dropping 72%. All that money. Seriously. But you know what? You didn't even know that um, higher education is one of America's top service exports, right? I did not. I did not know that. I think 
most people didn't really think of it as an export. Right, right, right. Because it's, you know, it's education. You're not really selling things abroad. Um, I first heard of this term, this concept, when I talked with some journalists from Australia. And we were talking about how, you know, a lot of more Chinese kids are studying, are going abroad to study in Australia. And they're like, yes, it's one of our uh, top uh, service exports. You know, besides minerals and other things. So they know very clearly that this is one of the pillars of their uh, economy, mm, mm, you know, mm, just mm. attracting international students. But, you know, in the time I spent in the States, I don't think I, I heard of anyone speaking of, you know, international students in that way. Maybe they thought it's just it just happens. I didn't think about it in mm-hmm. the huge context of what is this doing for the economy. Mm. But I would always look in my year, you know, they have the big book that you start for your year. Right. And I would always look at the price for my tuition and, oh, oh wow, this is costing me a lot. And then look down and then it would say how much international students paid. And I would think, Whoa. well, sad for them. <laughs> right. And also, um, it's it's usually much harder for international students to get scholarships. Right, right, it's like, right, unless yeah. you have like private scholarships. Mm. Like one of my roommate back in college, uh, she was so smart. She is so smart. She had this, uh, she like had all these crazy scores Mm. and she had a private scholarship to go study in the States. Wow. Otherwise, it's like not affordable. It's even if you get into the university, it's like it costs like millions, literally in R&B. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. Especially those big universities. are also turning around vis-a-vis other factors. So actually, right now, just in terms of the total amount of STEM graduates, China is actually producing way more than any other country. So according to Statista again, which get, mm. got their data from the World Economic Forum, China produced 4.7 million STEM graduates. That's uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm. And the United States in that year only produced 568,000. So increasingly, Chinese 
mm-hmm. folks don't really need these other institutions. So they're more like, can I get a better job? Is this going to help me out? You know, or is there very something very specific I want to study? Mm. So increasingly now that the safety issues are coming up mm-hmm. and we have, you know, China is engaged in some of the fastest mm. computing, literally building some of the fastest computers in the world now. China and Japan and the United States keep passing the torch between the three of them who has the fastest computer year after year after year. Mm-hmm. If China's in the front running and look at China's space program, they have their own internet, their their own space station. Mm. They have the, the only rover on the uh, far side of the moon. They're doing things that no other country has ever done. Uh, increasingly, sending students abroad isn't necessary. Well, I guess in the past, it's um, it was prestigious, right? And also the U.S. Mm, does mm, have mm. some of the top universities in the world. It does, still, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's always been very attractive that way. But who wants to, you know, put your safety? Yeah. Like, that's the priority for, for everybody, especially for parents. You know, your child leaving home for the first time and you're sending them to a place that comes up in the news as, you know, like gunshots everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's not the case. It's not like the the yeah, um, yeah. the average thing seen that you see, but that's what people see in the news. I also think it's not as well understood by Americans how much anti-Asian violence has become an issue. Like, obviously, mm. the Asian American community is aware of it because they go out and seek this information out because it affects them. Right. But like um, a lot of news reports will not get aired because they're like, oh, people are not interested in that. Mm. So actually it gets buried and a lot of, you know, white Americans Mm. are not as cognizant of the threat to Asian Asians in the United States. Like I never really understood um, this Asian hate crimes. Like Mm. what do Asians do? Because some people, they blame (laughs) the, uh, you know, the pandemic Mm. on China. But otherwise, like what what do Asians do? I'm sorry. This is like a it's pretty late in asking this question, but I still just don't really quite because Asians are, you know, we kind of keep to ourselves. We don't go out looking for trouble. You're absolutely right? right. There is no specific action by any Asian Americans that is the cause of the violence by these people against them. Hmm. Based on all the websites that I've looked at, and I've looked at this extensively, and I've talked about this in other episodes specifically about this topic, it looks primarily like it's because of bad media representations demonizing hmm. China. So like these media representations where they talk and negatively about China in inappropriate and oftentimes very inaccurate ways right. are causing people who were already disposed to deranged activity and violence hmm. to take out their frustrations on who they think the TV is essentially telling them is the enemy. Mm. So that that is it's, it's media's fault. And the mainstream media in America needs to take responsibility and be more responsible about the way that it talks about its international associates, well, the other nations in the world. Let's not get our hopes up, you know, when it comes to responsibility mm. on the media in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Coming back to... Um, International students for mm-hmm, the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in this article, I found this. I think this is a very nice article. They say that people, you know, they they go there mm. for the education and also for the opportunities, right? Following right, the yeah. education, a lot of them stay for jobs and all that, right? And um, and the ones who stay, they become a critical part of the um, American talent infrastructure. Mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm, to admit mm-hmm. that. And they say that in one in five entrepreneurs 
who founded startups in the U.S. is an immigrant. Mm. And three quarters of them first came to America as students. And while they were enrolled, they brought diversity and also millions in revenue, right? Even billions, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm, we mentioned, mm -hmm, to their mm -hmm. schools. But the article continues, that beacon, bright for decades, mm. has begun to dim. And maybe, I don't know, I think maybe in the past, um, the universities, and they were so sought after, especially the great ones, that they probably have, you know, took it for granted a little bit, mm. right? It, because so many people want to come. Um, but things are starting to change, right? The Trump administration, mm -hmm. with this America First policies and Billy Coast rhetoric, um, sent the message that foreign students, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. students were not as welcome. Yeah. And then, of course, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, shut the borders, and that just stopped. Last year, that means 2020 decline in international students, um, the U.S. government reported an 18% drop in overall student visa holders and a 72% decrease in new enrollments in 2020. Wow, 72%. 72%. I know. Wow. So if we're talking about a $42 billion industry, 72% of that is what? 30 That's a big chunk. Billion. It's like $30 billion lost annually. That's just like you were saying, that's just the actual students contribution. We're not talking about because STEM majors make a lot more money after they've graduated entering the workforce than anyone else. They make mm. more than an English major is going to make. They contribute more and they pay more taxes. Right. So we're, we're talking about a much greater loss than $30 billion annually. And also we're just talking about tuition, right? I mm -hmm. mean, like when mm -hmm. students go oh, yeah. study. Books, it's, rent. Well, accommodation, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. They buy cars. And also nowadays, I mean, so many students, they, they just, they seem like they have so much money. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of cases it's because Chinese parents are willing to spend mm. right, when it comes to their kids' education. Yeah. They want their kids to live uh, more comfortable lives. So they go with a lot of money in their bank accounts. Mm -hmm. Not like, you know, when my parents' generation, when they went, like they had nothing, basically. So um, in the article, it says, America's light was already flickering, referring to its attraction of international students. Mm -hmm. And also outside of U.S., right, students, they have more options than ever before. Yeah. It's not like the U.S. is the only place where people can go study. Yeah. Back in the days, it feel like, you know, oh, studying abroad, it's like almost a given that most of them are going to the States. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, there's so many uh, more options. Like my relative, so that's my husband's sister's son, oh. <laughs> um, he went to study in Australia yeah. after undergraduate school. And um, uh, I think it was a semester later, that was when the pandemic hit. Like he already got mm, tickets mm, to mm. to come back for the New Year's. Mm. And then he decided like, you know, maybe I shouldn't move around too much. And actually some of his classmates in Australia, also from China, they came back and then they were never able to go back. So, but then the thing is after that, everything was online anyway. Right. So basically they paid the tuition for like normal graduate school education, but ended up just like staying in his dorm for the next year and half. Dunhuang, situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, 
faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Dunhuang, a place born in legends. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe to the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers. Listening to the bridge. Well, I want to add something. You know, you bring up a flickering aspect of the United States, and you mentioned Australia. Mm. But actually, again, I want to come back to China and its homegrown uh, science programs. Sure. And it shows that China, according to National Science Foundation, that's where they get their data, actually produces more scientific publications. 20.67% of total scientific publications were coming from China. Mm. And then in the United States, only 16.54% as of 2018. Mm. So actually, Chinese scientists Scientists, this is not just university, but scientists themselves are increasingly more relevant on the global stage than their global peers. And also a lot of the students who are, you know, who have been studying um, STEM uh, majors, mm. a lot of them are from other countries. Too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially Asian countries. But that's the thing. Why, why don't people want mm-hmm. to study like math and science in the States? Mm. I don't know. Why is it not as popular? <laughs> like, um, It's hard. I mean, it's hard? <laughs> well, you know, the, the education system doesn't produce enough highly qualified people to enter into STEM. That is a a fact. The United States education system Mm. produces a lack of qualified candidates to enter and fulfill all of the university positions that exist in STEM and needs immigrants to take those places in the university and for its own, you know, infrastructure and uh, economy. I've, I've read multiple papers on this. I mean, yeah, I mean, like when I uh, studied in the back in the States, the students were clearly very smart. Maybe just not as many people are interested in these. Well, those are the ones that made it into the program. You're not looking at the general population. Mm. Anyhow, but I think it wasn't until um, recent years mm. that I started hearing people talking about STEM, mm. you know, STEM, mm. experts giving advice that we should strengthen our education in these aspects. So we don't depend so much on, you know, international students and uh, we don't fall behind too far. Um, so I don't know for kids who have talent in math. Hey, this is your future. <laughs> Lots of new jobs are waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One more point, a sure. data point I want to add, because a lot of people say, oh, OK, China's producing a lot of the most amount of pay- Papers. But one of the things that I get pushback sometimes when I'm discussing this with people is they say, oh, yeah, but how many of those are citations? Because a um, paper that is cited shows mm-hmm. that it is uh, reputable because the more citations, the more qualified that paper is. Mm-hmm. So actually, this is a data for the year 2018. Again, rank uh, in top 10 percent of most scientific cited scientific papers mm. only as of 2018. Wow. China was number one and the U.S. finally mm. fell to number two, with Britain following that and Germany following that, which means not only is China producing the most amount of scientific papers, but also the most citations for their scientific papers, meaning that the quality 
not just the quantity mm-hmm. of Chinese science is actually number one. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, um, cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. China mm-hmm. has been putting so much effort in into science and into in- innovation mm-hmm. um, that you're going to see results. It might take a little time, but you're going to see results. Mm-hmm. Everything has its consequences, good and bad. I'm just thinking, you know, if you're a Chinese parent in the context of our conversation, mm. your son or daughter wants to be a, a scientist of some kind or a mathematician or an engineer. And you're looking at all of this, mm. the threats to your child's safety. And if you're making a decision as a family and China has some of the best programs now for STEM, mm-hmm. if I'm the dad there, I'm going to be like, go to Tsinghua, go to Tsinghua. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like like you can just go to Tsinghua. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not let people get the wrong idea here. If you can get into <laughs> Harvard, you probably did pretty well on your Gaokao. Harvard will do. <laughs> we'll consider. <laughs> but the tuition will be so much more. Yeah. Yeah. But then if you get into like a really good PhD program, um, they usually have, it comes with a package, right? Most of the time. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Well, some of those packages are really interesting because I was applying for PhD programs at one time in my life. A lot of the programs that exist that come with a package mm-hmm. mean that you're at the program for twice as long. Oh. So for example, Yale has a history program that's four years mm-hmm. long. That's if you pay full cash. But if you want to get a package where you come out debt free from that PhD, mm. then you take typically are at a program for eight years, two years for study, four years for Mm -hmm. teaching the undergraduate students, and then two more years Mm -hmm. to complete your research at the end. So you actually pay back the cost of going by teaching undergraduate students for half of the total time that you're getting your PhD, extending the time that you're getting your PhD to eight years, sometimes 10, sometimes 10. Well, so if you start at age 22, You'll come out when you're like 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight years. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, I'm way past that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of uh, dedication there. Mm. Um, but the yeah, cost is another thing. And let's see, competition from other countries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and now we're mm-hmm. not just talking about like Australia yeah. or New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Right. New Zealand opened its border, I think, right earlier this year in April, I think, mm. at the end of April, so that students can, you know. Victoria University, is that what it's called? I'm not too sure. I think that's their big prestigious yeah. university. And also, and people are, like, people in China um, are pretty fascinated by the natural landscape, right? And all the sheep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dairy products <laughs> from New Zealand. So that's... And the hobbits. And the hobbits, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's become a popular destination. Mm. And also people are looking for places closer to home, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? In case anything happens, any big changes, yeah. shock to the this or the economy or that, they can come back home. Uh, so Singapore mm-hmm, is also mm-hmm. um, a great destination. Another European yeah. countries. Um, so now, basically, you, the U.S. has a lot of other competitors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Harvard doesn't have a lot of other competitors, but U.S. in general. But yeah, only so many yeah. people can get into Harvard. Yeah. So it's not easy, huh? It is mm. challenging. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, as welcoming as I feel as a foreigner in China, that's one of the reasons I've been here so long is people are really nice to me. And they're like, oh, you're mm-hmm. f- hello, my foreign friend, blah, blah, blah. If I was. Well, you seem pretty harmless, Jason. <laughs> 
if I was afraid of walking down the street and someone's going to hit me in the back of the head with a brick, I might not be staying. No. You know what I mean? Like, right. so certainly that's going to be calculating into people's mm. what when they think about, do I want to live? I'm going to be a student. Do I want to go to a place where someone might kill me like that? Right. That's ludicrous. So that's the new hesitancy mm. by foreign mm. student. Right. Spells big trouble for U.S. colleges and also the economy in general. So they say in, in another article, he says 70 percent of international students, students on Asian campuses are from Asia. That's a huge percentage. Wow. But most seven, 70 percent, 70 percent. Well, consider how many like the population of Asian. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Countries, yeah. right? And the recent rise in anti-Asian hate crimes have mm. made some of them reconsider their futures in the U.S. Mm. Mm. Um, that's one big thing. And then, of course, a COVID became the trigger point. Mm. And also, you know how crazy the prices of plane tickets get yeah. or they got? Yeah. I mean, I heard some crazy numbers. Um, so that that has to figure in the to the picture. too. They have an airline pilot shortage that's really huh. famous in the last few weeks. There's even like some protests by Delta pilots where they're walking out off the job. Oh. For us, it's like, oh, they make one hundred and ninety thousand a year. They want 300000 a year. Boo-hoo. But for them, it's it's more than that. They're actually overworked and they're flying like mm. more hours than they're supposed mm-hmm. to be able to fly because there's such a shortage of pilots. Mm. As a person who is being flown by a pilot at 35,000 feet in the air, mm. you want your pilot to be rested. Right. <laughs> the, and, and have the training that's necessary, right? <laughs> yeah. Not like I got yeah. 80% of my training. Trust me, you, you're fine. So <laughs> This is okay. This plane flies itself. <laughs> yeah, I, I've flown things like this before. <laughs> so, I mean, th- these are just some of the reasons. I guess also uh, the attractive- attractiveness of opportunities domestically Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, as you mentioned, not just uh, the STEM and Mm. all of that. This might uh, represent, I heard the term rapture, Mm. like for education. So in this article, it says, if America ultimately sees its place as the world leader in international education... It will affect diplomacy, the economy, Mm. and the health of colleges and universities nationwide. And this moment represents a rapture, says Stephanie K. Kim, a scholar of international and comparative education at Georgetown University. Mm. So a rapture can be a break that allows for fresh starts and innovation, Mm. or it could be the start of a downward spiral, right? Because there are only so many uh, young people looking for education abroad. Mm. And if they've decided that, okay, I don't have to go to the U.S. and the other options look pretty good to me, it might be uh, even be cheaper options then more and more are going to follow that trend. So it will be very hard for the U.S. to recover. It's, let's call it client base, right? She said, Kim says, if this is a rapture, I don't know if we'll be able to see its shape until we have hindsight. By then, it might be too late. So international education is changing swiftly and in real time. And America's signal has become weaker. And the question is, will U.S. colleges be able to adjust before it goes dark? No, I see what you're saying. Again, we keep bringing up Harvard. Kennedy School of Government is one of those like top 
tier places to go study international diplomacy. Mm. Um, there was actually a speech in 2015 given by the former UN ambassador uh, from Singapore in which he talks about um, mm. the benefit of the United States educa- higher education system to the world has been that leaders from all kinds of countries around the world mm-hmm. were educated in the same the way of perceiving the world and that allowed people mm-hmm. to communicate with one another in a in the same dialogue and the same kind of discourse mm. but you know I, I think it's really inter- an interesting idea that increasingly maybe the future leaders of the world will not be educated as much by the United States as much as like by a diverse set of poles of high class universities around the world. And that will be interesting to see what the knock on effect in the future will be on diplomacy. I think that's a really good point Mm. Uh, because as prestigious as it sounds, you know, getting a degree from Harvard and all that, Mm -hmm. uh, if all most of the leaders or a big portion, they're trained from this one by this one school. That's too narrow. Yeah, maybe. Right? maybe. I and mean, there's so much wisdom and so much way of doing things from other cultures uh, that they deserve a little bit more weight. Exactly. And also, yeah, yeah. you know, the things they found to work in one culture might not be suitable for other cultures. Absolutely. It's like, you know, the U.S. exporting its ideals worldwide. In a lot of cases, it just didn't work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And maybe this is the time for the U.S. to to reverse things a little bit, right? To to open its doors to wisdom from other cultures, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to start learning things from from other people. Absolutely. And I think in the long term, it will benefit hugely from this. If hugely is a word, I'm just making it up. I'm not sure, but after Trump, I think you can add Lee to anything. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean. I think that's how it works now. That's the new yeah. rule. Twenty-five hundred years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the Sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The Sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms. You're listening to The Bridge. This is a little off point, but I think it's interesting on this point of diversifying the source of wisdom for future generations. Um, I w- I ran across a term called white savior uh, complex. Mm. So I was like, oh, OK, I'm white. I need to know what this is because it's going to affect me. So I looked it up and basically it was the idea that um, white folks, when they want to help people of color, non-white folks, basically, mm-hmm. they, they oftentimes jump into a movement and try to lead the movement because they assume that they are the best equipped and most knowledgeable about a particular topic, mm. which is a form of race, racism, even though they intend to be like good people or whatever. Mm. And so it's really important for us, not for you, I say us as an us white folk, to listen mm-hmm. to the other voices around the world and understand their perspectives before we take action in their causes. Right. And so when we're talking about this, again, diversification away from UK and US universities for educating our future generations, the positive gains from that, just like you say, will be that 
other voices that have not been able to reach the higher echelons of, you know, ivory towers will Mm. finally be those same ivory towers. And that could reposition the global discourse in a very positive way. Wow, that is eloquent. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And also, I'm still reading this article. It's a very long article about Mm. education, Mm -hmm. right? Higher education, also international students. Some experts say that Chinese students in particular may also find homegrown options more appealing Mm, mm, than they mm. were a few years ago uh, because China has been investing heavily in its universities. Mm. So he says uh, five years from now, it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me if China is still number one. Mm. Uh, Maybe this is like uh, in certain just in certain areas. You know, among countries. You're making me think I need to get a sneaky, quick master's degree from Rainman University. Why not? Why not? If <laughs> yeah. you have the time. Hey, but if you're thinking about, you know, uh, getting more work and even having a kid, maybe, yeah, you have to, you know, uh, weigh things a little bit. Kid, nah. Nah? Master's degree, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, not a bad idea. But it, it says, you know, it wouldn't surprise him if China is still number one among countries sending students to the U.S., mm. Mm. I mean, there is such a, a big base of um, young students, uh, but it would surprise right. me if China is still 35% of all international students. I mean, they're like other from other countries, like Latin America is also a top source. I think, I think you're you're hitting the point. It's not going to remain that new enrollments are, are 72%. Like that's not the decline. The decline is 72% less. What's probably going to happen is that less students will go. Less international students will be attending the university system in the United States and the UK. UK, but it won't be as dramatic as it was a year or two ago in the height of the pandemic when mm. it was impossible almost to fly around. But certainly there will be an impact. And then part of the knock on from that will be that homegrown universities and alternative options will receive more higher qualified mm-hmm. students and increase the quality of the research and the student body at those universities. I mean, if we didn't have interferences like you know, the pandemic and other oh, volatile things going on in the world, um, we will all agree that more young people going abroad, right, studying either in the U.S. or in Europe, other countries, getting to know the world is really a good thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? People to people exchanges, it really helps with understanding, yeah. Right. It's not like anybody is against these, but times have changed and there are new situations, um, and it's time for, I think, especially time for American universities to or and the government to think up ways to adapt to that. Mm. Um, I mean, also, uh, people mention the the American dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, people kind of like, you know, less people talk about it, maybe makes them feel, I guess, sad than hopeful. And also younger people mm. in China mm. or people who are looking for something for their future might also start to question um, the American dream, mm, mm, you know, mm. as you mentioned, the, the beacon, the light, when you look forward to it, it's just, it's flickering. And then you don't feel the confidence right? in, mm. um, in viewing that as a signpost, as guidance. Mm. And I mean, in this article, it says China has traditionally favored the United States as a destination. Mm. I mean, more than half of its students who study abroad would go to um, the U.S. And this is according to data from Chinese Ministry mm-hmm. um, of Education. But that percentage, uh, but, you know, parents for the first time, um, they may think that maybe this is not the best choice for various reasons. And also they can, you know, consider not just um, this these other options in China, but also like universities in Hong Kong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And as I mentioned, closer destinations like Japan, Singapore, 
once you start to look for options. I just wanted to mention our our mutual friend, a friend of the show, Morris. He recently got a uh, some work with the University of Hong Kong doing uh, mm. consultations about their business program. So I thought that was really interesting. It's, it's, it's okay. one of the prestigious universities in China, and he, he's been associating with them lately. Mm-hmm. And this might be a chance for families to actually mm. to sit down and explore options. Because back in the days, it was like by default, right? You apply to the these really good American universities. And now because of uh, all these reasons, they might have to redo their work, right? Like all these mm, um, mm, mm. consultant companies for people studying abroad, maybe mainly their destination was the US, but now they have to ex- start, they can start exploring like all over the world. Can I add a strange, I want to add a strange angle to this that's a little bit different than most people uh, see. In the United States, I spent a long time in university, like 11 years, uh, different, I have so many different degrees it's actually kind of crazy. Mm. But while I was studying this idea, which is a relatively new idea in the last 10 or 15 years of cross-pollination came up. And this has different applications. Yeah, the cross-pollination is a term referring to flowers and bees, right? Right. But this metaphor represents, so you have a bachelor's degree in, um, I know, biology, Mm. but now you get a master's degree in physics Mm. or or you have a major in English, but then you switch to philosophy for your PhD. (laughs) So what this means, this is just one aspect. I'm going to go to another one in a moment. It'll make sense why I'm bringing this point Mm -hmm. up. The cross idea of cross-pollination is if you were able to get a PhD in philosophy, but you studied law. Mm. Now, when you produce philosophy, you'll have an advantage in looking into the legalistic aspects of of reality and examining them philosophically. Or if you studied biology and now you're in physics, you can take knowledge that you learned in biology and apply that to physics in a way which someone who's only studied physics will not be able to. It gives you certain advantages. But there's a nut. I was studying uh, world history. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that we were talking about is if they say, OK, so if you want to get a uh, Ph.D. in history or world history or Asian history, it's not a great idea to only get all your university degrees in the United States and Europe. Mm. It's actually a much better idea to go get a master's degree in like India or China or Africa or somewhere else, because then Mm. when you get your PhD, you can mix the the knowledge that you learned Mm. with different voices around the world and have a better whole understanding of world history or like a particular geography, because you have learned that knowledge from a variety of localities, as they say. So it's Mm -hmm. it's much better. So I think it's it's a great idea. Not you make it sound. So easy. <laughs> I will get a degree in philosophy and then I might just get a PhD well, just, in, I don't know, engineering. <laughs> well, we're talking about university students when they're thinking about right. a, a studying in the U.S., maybe they go there for a, just a B.A. and then they come back to China and get a master's degree here. Mm. That could have better advantages in, in terms of seeing a larger picture of their right. field. Here's another point that I want to add. Because of the the pandemic and also, I think, the global economic downturn, um, more and more people, maybe won't have as much money, mm, mm, right, mm, for oh, yeah. fancy things like getting an international yeah. education. Um, and here in this article, um, it says foreign students can be especially susceptible to economic shifts, mm. right, including those caused by COVID. 
And globally, 55 million people fell out of the middle class during the pandemic. And this is according to the Pew Research Center. Mm, mm. And of that number, 60% were in India, which is the second largest source of international students on American mm, campuses. Mm, so basically, mm, it's like, you know, it's been hit in from different areas. Mm. You have less students from China. And also from India. And that's like, you know, a majority. I feel like that must be the majority of their international students. You know, it's interesting. Uh, China has quite a few international students. I don't think this is well known in the United States, but there are a lot of Indian, Mm. Pakistani, Southeast Asian students Mm. who come to China for their education. I actually have a friend who got her medical degree here in Wuhan University from Jamaica. Oh. So she's actually, she's going to the United States Mm -hmm. to practice and be a medical doctor, having received her medical degree here in China. And she's from Jamaica. So, wow. Wow. It just makes my head spin (laughs) thinking about it. Is that recognized? Doesn't she have to go to like uh, medical school again in the States? She doesn't go to medical school again. She takes a series of tests. Oh, see, okay. Well, see, this is uh, the perfect opportunity for you to get your master's degree. I don't know how many degrees you already have, but, you know, (laughs) if you have the time, uh, one more won't hurt. (laughs) I I would actually like to get another one someday. I really like. uh, But you do have to speak Chinese. No, you know, I was talking to we had a person on the show named Andy Borham who got his university degree from Fudan University, a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And he was studying Chinese culture. Mm. That was literally his major. And he studied in English. Huh. Okay. So there are there are some programs at different universities in Beijing. I, I've seen them, and they well, are that, they are specifically taught in English. You you just made a Fudan University diploma sound very watery. <laughs> Do you know that term, watery? <laughs> he actually uh, just, we are giving credit to Fudan University. He was a triple major full scholarship student, his university in New Zealand before he came to huh. the prestigious Fudan University here in China. Mm-hmm. It is very prestigious. Yes. Yeah. Hey, so this is our show. We could do advertisement for, you know, undergraduate study and graduate <laughs> study for China. You know, we welcome uh, students from all over the world. There are a lot of great opportunities and it's a very friendly country with good food. Yeah, absolutely. Just check it out for yourself. With good food, maybe the best, you know, depends on who you ask. (laughs) Chinese food is some of the best food in the world. Certainly very tasty. (laughs) Want to learn about world affairs in a more laid-back and accessible manner? Join insiders, experts, and analysts in the casual setting of the chat lounge to hear their personal experiences and opinions on major events and hot issues. Subscribe to Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. You're listening to The Bridge. 
I think we could look at one larger picture. You know, we're talking about $42 billion for the U.S. economy. Hmm. The U.S. economy is, I think, $22 trillion. So even though it is a huge amount of money, I'm wondering how much, how large of an impact it is going to have on the larger economy. Maybe especially since the United States is already dealing with hmm. several other major hits to its economy. It's like, if it's being hit by all these other things, is it going to notice being hit again? Hmm. Well, okay, here's another angle. Um, may, will this damage the UK and the US perception of themselves as a destination for people around the world? One of the things in the United States, how it likes to define itself is a place where immigrants come. But if increasingly, and the, the immigrants that uh, US visas and green cards hmm. favor are STEM majors, if less STEM majors are coming hmm. to the United States to study, right. then the spigot hmm. for money is shut off or shut, it's closed up a little. Hmm. But also the spigot for highly qualified immigrants is also closing off. What, for other reasons? Well, if the funnel for uh, people who are able to qualify for green cards coming to the United States is coming partially from people in STEM majors who have, you mm. know, a better chance of being able to get a green card. If that funnel has less students coming into it, mm. then the total amount of immigrants able to work in the United States and contribute to America's idea of itself as a destination for highly qualified immigrants actually gets shut mm. down. But I do have um, in this article, it does say that the Biden administration is hoping to attract tens of thousands of international students who stayed away from U.S. Uh, campuses during the pandemic. So foreign enrollment plummeted by 20 percent last year. I think mm. that's uh, describing 2020, mm. costing nearly 10 billion dollars in lost mm. revenue. Mm. Um, some students are starting to return, but recovery might not be so easy. And even bef like even before the pandemic, like international students were already turning away from the U.S. So we can't blame everything on the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in from 2018 to 2019 school year, foreign enrollment peaked at 1.1 million students. And then it's like been declining ever mm -hmm. since mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as countries like Australia, Canada and the US uh, and the UK, they gain more foreign students. But the colleges, they need the tuition. Um, this is uh, the director of the Kissinger uh, Institute on China and the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says they, as in colleges, need the tuition. They need full four year out of state tuition payers because like if you are America citizen and mm -hmm. you live in the state, the tuition you pay, yeah. as you remember, yeah. is so much lower than if you go to a different state. Yeah, a different state or from um international students. So that's like just yeah, loads of cash coming in. And, and he mm -hmm. said, you know, the colleges have become addicted to this money, you know, meaning a lot of students uh, coming from especially China. Right. So but if that's been shut they up, need they, they count it as, as part of their revenue in order to stay afloat. Absolutely. A lot of universities in the United States are actually leveraged. So what they do is they count they, they take loans. On their future income so that they can build new structures and infrastructure and labs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I know this happened at UC Berkeley quite a lot. So they're probably taking a massive hit on all kinds of loans right now with less international students coming into these kind of universities because mm -hmm. they've already spent money mm -hmm. that then didn't materialize. Oh, wow. Well, we need to find some more cheery, <laughs> uh, happier topics in the future. And 
it's making me worried. Although I don't live in the states anymore, because you know all the things we've been talking about inflation and the pandemic and immigration issues. I I'm actually feel very optimistic. The idea that we're going to diversify, you know, the sources of knowledge around the world actually gives me optimism. I agree. For I think a, one of the great philosopher Jean Francis Leotard said, "The voices from below," mm. and what he meant by is not the main central hegemonic voices mm. who are the imperialists, but all of the other people in the world wow. being part of a grand narrative. Now, finally, um, other voices <laughs> from other parts of the world will start to get heard a little bit more. Yeah. So I guess if you look at things from a higher perspective, it's not as bad. Sometimes we probably need shocks like this to change things in major ways. Um, and that might not be, might not always be a bad thing. Mm. So we have to lift ourselves out of the glum and worries and see things from a new and higher perspective. Mm. Thank you for doing that, Jason. <laughs> Listen into our next episode for more insights and be a part of Bridging East and West. Thank you for your time, baby. Thank you, Jason. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.